Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you've listened to our My Millennial Property podcast, you will know our guest today. It is Emily Wallace. She's a buyer's advocate from Melbourne. And I wanted to get Emily on the show because we've had a lot of questions about buyer's advocates in the Facebook group recently. So we're just answering your questions in this episode. If you're in New South Wales or any other parts of Australia, you might know them as buyer's agents, but it is the same same. We're going to talk about the process, the costs, if you need one, uh, the money that you can save, notwithstanding that it might not be for everyone, but this is just a chance to have a look under the hood of a real life buyer's advocate. We can't do Thursday show without Global X. Global X brings you the world of innovation to investors with beyond ordinary tech ETFs. From AI to robotics, Global X's range of exchange traded funds allows you to capture the companies shaping the future. Explore the possibilities at globalxetfs.com.au. AFSL 4661078. Investing involves risks and returns are not guaranteed. Refer to the relevant PDS and TMD. My name's Glenn James. Welcome to the podcast. Let's talk everything to do with buyers, advocates, and agents right now. Emily Wallace, host of the My Millennial Property Podcast. Welcome back to the main show. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. It has. Now, what does a buyer's advocate or buyer's agent, depending on where you are in Australia, what do you actually do? Well, that's a big question. But the short answer is we source, inspect and negotiate properties for clients through a really established network of real estate agents. And depending on whether you're buying for a home to live in or an investment property, uh, depends how localised the buyer's agent or advocate might be. But Mm. basically, we take the pain out of buying a property. Does everyone need a buyer's advocate? Not everyone. Mm. You you can't... I mean... Majority of people do buy a property on their own. You yeah. know, there's way more people that buy solo than we're the buyer's advocate. So you certainly can buy on your own without any help. I'm just going to pretty much ask you heaps of questions from people who listen to the podcast from the Facebook group. Yeah. Uh, so we'll do that. We will get into kind of your specialty and what you're doing on the ground, particularly in uh, the Melbourne area. But Shirley asks, do you need to be within a certain tax bracket to have a buyer's agent? Oh, that's an interesting question. Mm. No, not at all. It's not so much about um, how much someone might earn to be able to use the services. Is that what it's referring to? Yeah. Yeah. In terms of income? Yeah. Absolutely not. It's to do with the ability to uh, engage an advocate financially is one piece of the puzzle. And then if you're referring to tax brackets, you're probably also referring to borrowing capacity and how much you might be able to spend on a property. Um, But there's usually no minimum purchase price for a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate. Because if you move uh, the income portion aside, 
theoretically, if someone inherited a heap of money and they didn't have to ever work ever again, they could say, I want to buy a house or an investment property. You pay a professional buyer's advocate to do a job and you pay for that service with cash up front, done. Exactly. There is a misconception that buyers advocates only buy really big homes and maybe that's where the question stems from as well. Right. But absolutely not the case. Uh, You'll find most BAs work with any budget. There was a very interesting question here from Natasha. Yeah. Can I call a BA out of the blue and let them know about my property? Can I completely skip selling with an agent and just use a BA? 100%. Happens all the time. I get phone calls from vendors direct all the time. Now, the chances of that lining up with the buyer list that an advocate has at the time is quite rare, very rare actually. You would be doing a lot of manual labour and basically doing the agent's job for them. The benefit of going through a real estate sales agent is that they already have a buyer network usually thousands upon thousands of email addresses and numbers to be able to text people. So yes, you could, but you could find yourself doing a lot of heavy lifting that could be done better by a real estate agent. But let's take that one step further in a practical sense. If I said, ring, 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 ring. Hey, Emily, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. It's Glenn here. Um, I want to sell my house. Do you have any buyers? And you said, oh my gosh, yes, I do. Mm. What the process would be, would it be that I would likely call my solicitor or conveyancer and get them to organize contracts and get that part going and then my people will talk to your people's people and it then goes from there? Well, if you don't have a real estate agent involved, you're actually negotiating the deal yourself. Your conveyancers, yes, I'll do the legal side for you and they'll talk to the purchaser's conveyancer. But as for establishing the price and what's acceptable, you'll actually be acting for yourself, which is a rarity and it's usually the other way around. It's usually Mm. the buyer acting for themselves. So uh, I'd make sure you're a pretty good negotiator and understand the market value of your property if you're going to go down that track of selling your home. There's a question here from Wahib. How do you choose one? And he's basically saying that it feels like there's BAs on every corner. Do you think that, you know, if you are listening to My Millennial Money, you might be listening to other property podcasts, you might be in this world. Mm. I I don't really know that many BAs myself, um, but how do you choose a buyer's advocate that suits you and your goals? You definitely want to see some evidence of track record. That's probably the biggest thing. So does this advocate buy properties that are similar to what I'm looking for? And I don't necessarily mean exact bed, bath, area and budget because a lot of advocates work with varying budgets. They don't buy the same property over and over, but do they know the area I'm looking in? And a really good measure of testing a good advocate, and here's sort of a hot tip for you, is call around the local real estate agents in the area and ask who do they deal with the most when it comes to advocates and who do they like dealing with the most? Because that's a good telltale sign. If a, if a real estate agent likes dealing with a buyer's advocate, the chances are they have a really good reputation in the industry and they're well received and they get more properties for their clients. So if I'm on my Saturday uh, property hunt look or whatever, and I've started to meet some, you know, because you go to one property, it's with that agent, then all right, I'll be at the other one at 2.30 this afternoon, see you there. So you kind of get to know people. Yes. And if you can't find the exact type that you need, you could say to that agent, hey, do you know any BAs? Yeah, that's actually how a lot of people end up finding advocates is, yeah, a, a real estate agent sort of says, I've seen you around the traps. You obviously need some help. Why don't you reach out to an advocate? That does happen. But that's kind of like anything. Word of mouth always, well, a, a lot of the time it's a good filter because yes. if you said to me, Glenn, who's your car mechanic? Who's your barber? Who's your dentist? You yeah. know, 
It's going to be someone that I used or that I know of someone's used who has had a great response. Yeah, exactly. That happens a lot. And look, the industry is small, as you touched on before. You feel like you don't know many BAs. Either do I. And really, in comparison to the number of real estate agents, I think there's 65,000 registered real estate agents in uh, Australia. That statistics probably from 2018, I think. There might be more, there might mm. be less, I don't know. Mm. But there's like less than 5,000 BAs. So yeah, there's a, a quite a disproportionate match in the two sides. Yeah. Claire actually said following on from this, yeah. that they say that they have uh, relationships with many real estate agents like buyers advocates. Yes. How do we know that they won't disclose the maximum purchase price to the agent and basically be in cahoots? Oh, as in the buyer's advocate saying my client has X amount to spend? Yeah. Well, we have to give them some sort of budget. So, And also, just because you have, let's call it $800,000, doesn't mean the property we're looking at is worth $800,000. Mm. People often think and they get a bit shy about their budget and, and telling it in full. Just because you have that to spend doesn't mean the agent's going to milk that out of you. Mm. We have to give a budget or at least we usually put out circa. So the term yes. circa is used a lot. Circa 800,000 and then we get things for 750, we get things for 850 and then, you know. Because realistically, if you had a client and they had an 800K budget, yep. you're knocking on doors with agents, quote unquote. Yes. Um, and you might be saying, hey, what have you got around 800? Yeah. Like you don't necessarily... I mean, you want to do the best thing because you're acting on behalf of your client. Exactly. You obviously want to get them the best deal possible Mm -hmm. because you'll be negotiating on their behalf and all that stuff and we'll get to that. And this probably feeds into that whole uh, flat fee arrangement and percentages and, um, well, let's go there now. You read my mind. (laughs) Yeah. So talk to us about Emily Wallace Buyers Advocate, your business. Mm -hmm. What do you do? Where? Why? And how did you fall into that? There's a lot there. There's a lot there. <laughs> how long you got? No, so I think the the crux of our business is that we buy first and family homes. So properties that people will live in, in very specific pockets of Melbourne. So the Bayside Corridor, a corridor through the north, and a little bit of the inner southeast as well. So we're very accustomed to working with first home buyers. And with that comes a lot of questions and a lot of handholding, which is actually the reason I chose to go into that specific niche is I'm not too fussed on analysing data and numbers for investing. I would actually rather take the emotion out of the purchase for home buyers. And uh, as you touched on about fees and things like that, we charge a flat fee so that we are making sure we're getting the best deal for the client. And when a buyer's advocate's charging a percentage, the more money the person spends, the more money the advocate makes. And that, back to, I think it was Claire's question around- um, Potential conflicts. Yeah, conflicts. Yeah. If you are looking for a buyer's advocate anywhere in Australia, I would definitely go with a fixed fee model to avoid any conflict of interest. And that's a decision I made from the outset. Even further on that- I would make sure the advocate isn't working with two clients who are looking for the same property in the same area with the same budget because not all it's not a blanket rule that that's the case. You wouldn't do it. You would think common sense you wouldn't, but uh, it's certainly a rule we made for our business. Because you're only taking a handful of clients at the time. Yes. We have up to 10 clients at any given time and no competing clients. Right. We actually allow a 15% budget between our clients in the similar area so that we're absolutely not competing with each other. Right. Okay. That's good. So it's not necessarily a volume business for your business. No. It's a quality business. Very much so. Now, I don't want you to say what you charge sure. because the problem is someone will hear this in 2027, yeah. <laughs> go, oh, she said this and, you know, the world's Inflation. a different place and all that. So 
at the moment, you know, we're almost, you know, three quarters of the way we're in, you know, September, October, whatever month it is, mm-hmm. 2023. What type of range of um, fee would people expect to pay, uh, flat fee, yep. uh, for a, a BA of your calibre, for example? Sure. I would say the minimum is around $14,000 in a full service capacity up to about 18000 depending probably more so the scope of work. When someone's looking for a very, very particular property, there's more resources required. And so some advocates will quote a little bit higher because they need more time to fulfil that job. Mm. But that's a good ballpark. Between fourteen to 18000 would be pretty standard for a fixed fee. Mm. And that's it. Like it might not be for everyone yep. because of that um, emotional, psychological amount that I need to pay this, but you're effectively outsourcing work to someone else. And also for many people, it's the first time they've done the process. Mm. So how would you know what's normal or what you're supposed to do? It's a lot of what we hear is, I don't really know what I'm doing and I don't know how I should know you know, what I'm doing because I wasn't taught this anywhere. So that's probably the biggest thing is actually the cost to avoid a mistake or, you know, make a really good purchase. But I understand it is parting with a significant amount of money when you've saved a deposit. Mm. So, yeah. And that's it. I mean, there's – and I might maybe after the break ask you about an example of a previous case that you've worked with and sure. and all that stuff. But let's move on to some more questions. Mm. What if someone comes to you and wants to buy an investment property? Well, we don't buy investment properties, so we suggest that they get in contact with a couple of different people. We give them options. I don't just sell them to one. Mm. Um, John's one of them yeah. <laughs> um, because a lot of people don't realise he does investment properties as a BA and we also have another company that we partner with for investments as well. Yeah. So um, very much uh, we don't touch that space. The only time we touch somewhat of an investment is what we call investment with purpose. Right. The purpose being dictated by a certain situation. Mum and dad buying an apartment for, their son to live in while he goes to uni. Right, okay. You know, downsides are buying ahead of the curb. They're buying now, but they'll move into that property in five years. It's a temporary investment. The long-term goal is that someone will live in the property. But you're not doing it outside of your area anyway. No, 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 no. Yep, cool, cool, cool. That's funny. So, yeah, so if you are new to this, John is the host with Emily of the My Millennial Property Podcast and he basically does all the investment stuff. Yes. Interesting, and I I think it's a a good thing that – you're not just sending everyone to John. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I just like to give choice. Like, look him up, like, look I, after Johnny and, you know, it's a good thing for everyone. But Yeah, yeah no, two choices and yeah. let the person decide, you know, what they feel is best. It's, yeah, it's a personal choice. Just like I would say, don't just speak to one BA, you know, like mm. if you're looking for someone to buy a home, you know, at least two in the area yeah. to see who you gel with the best and don't always go on fee. Yeah, awesome. Michael has a question about track records. Yep. Um, I want to see BAs that have had a proven track record. So do you and most BAs should have some examples either on their website of actual people who have given permission to share their story or yes. like how many properties a year do you think a good BA needs to be moving? Well, probably between 40 to 50. Right. So property a week. Property a week I would say is a good measure. That being said, with the investment side of things, they well may well do more than that yep. because the process is different. With an owner-occupier, you might be going through 20-odd properties per client, so your capacity is limited. With an investor being numbers-driven, they might only see three properties put in front of them and choose from that. So, yeah, I would say some investment BAs might be doing double that. Radio. next up, Ian said, a buyer's agent's really worth it? Or could you achieve the same result by studying your market 
and contacting real estate agents? Or is it not worth the stress? And that crying, laughing emoji. I'm looking at purchasing my second investment property early next year, but unsure on BA as their fees are high for what you get. That's interesting because, you know, price is what you pay, value is what you get, everyone. (laughs) Like there is a lot of bloody time and hours that goes into the background of a BA Mm -hmm. finding property. Definitely. I think the biggest thing that you would find very hard to quantify on a monetary value is a BA. Like I know I can pick up the phone to a certain agent and say, hey, I've got this budget in this area. What have you got? And they go, hang on, Em, press hold. I'll just bring up our stock list and run you through everything we have, as well as the appraisals we have coming up this week for properties. Mm. So to build, for any BA to build a reputation of trust with the agents is something that a general public buyer might struggle to do to get access to stock. And then on top of that, if they're searching for an investment property, like I myself, as a buyer's agent, engage another buyer's agent to buy my investment property because I know how much work goes into the numbers side of things. It's really hard unless you're pinpointing a very specific area, which some people default to locally, which is sometimes a mistake. If you're prepared to research the whole of Australia as the market and you have a lot of free time on your hands, you probably could do it yourself. If you work Monday to Friday, nine to five, you got a full-time job and you can't pick up agents' phone calls as they're ringing you with stock, then mm. probably not. Yeah, it is a wild one. And there's a question here that I thought was quite interesting mm. from Andrew. How do they deal with conflicts of interest? Such as if they would personally not buy at this time, but wouldn't say so as they can't get paid without a transaction. How do they approach a buyer who wants a house for now but an investment later, how hard slash easy is this to help with? Okay, there's a bit in that. The first one is a really great question because it's basically saying if the market's terrible, why would a buyer's agent say now's a good time to buy? But a buyer's agent shouldn't be telling you strategic market information, should they? <laughs> well, look, I think it comes down to are you even ready to buy? Because right. people who are questioning whether now's the right time to buy are typically those who have actually had pre-approval for a long time and have been sitting on the fence getting splinters and not jumping into the market. So I think when uh, an advocate is doing the right thing by their client, they're making sure they're personally ready to buy. We don't time the market. you know. I mean, especially in the investment space, it's time in the market, not time in the market. I'm sure if you've been a podcast listener for a while, you would have heard that phrase yeah, I hate before. that saying. Yeah. Only because it's overcooked. <laughs> yeah, it is. It so is. But it's so true though, um, in terms of, you know, doing the right thing by the client and Andrew's saying there, they wouldn't get paid without a transaction. Yes, that's true. And there are definitely ebbs and flows, just like there are for the sales agents as well. Um, But at the end of the day, I have certainly told people to hold off if they want more stock. For example, people calling me in June, July, I said, if you want to come on my September list, Let's jump on them when there's going to be a bit more for you to choose from in your particular area. And that's morally doing the right thing. Mm. And I think as a professional, as you have an established business and you going along, you're not a desperate, smelly car salesperson that just needs any sale at any cost. And a good established business, they're just like, I can't help you now. It'll be better next month. And that probably is a question to ask. How long have you been a BA? Mm. Now, I think absolutely we've all started at the bottom. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there has to be some type of practical experience. I've got a good business humming along. Hey, I can't help you now. I reckon it'll be better for what you're talking about in four months' time. 
sure, that will cost you a sale in the short term. But if you look after people, everything will be awesome on balance. Definitely. But the one thing that I would say as well, particularly for those who are buying for an investment property, Mm -hmm. it's not your mortgage broker's job to give you strategic property advice. It's not the real estate agent's job to give you a strategic property advice. I was listening to another podcast that I forget what it was. I forget who it was, but there was some guy saying that he does most his research for investment properties from property managers. Oh. It's like, no, that's the last, well, sure, might consider it, but I'm not getting my strategic property advice from a property manager as awesome as they are because my one always returns my calls. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just not getting strategic property or financial advice from anyone but a property person and that's their focus. Yeah. A markets, property market person. You get your strategy right. You go, yep, we need this type of house in this location. Awesome. Then I'll go get an attack dog onto it. Yeah, for sure. I think the property management piece maybe comes from understanding vacancy rates and what the tenants are like in the area, but that's not, that shouldn't necessarily determine where you buy for the long term. Mm. It's a short term thing. Um, but I actually think the best combination is someone who works hand in hand with a financial advisor or planner who goes, we've allocated X amount of funds to your purchase. And that's where the, the sort of line stops with them. They've allocated the funds and they know it needs to return X amount of yield. And then you hand that brief to a professional, a property professional to go and find that uh, property for you in terms of what the numbers need to do. And a lot of people, yeah, they rely on information and advice that's just simply not that. And I think you can really come unstuck depending Mm. on who you're listening to. Lauren finds the process of finding a buyer's agent or advocate just as overwhelming as the actual property. So (laughs) what type of research or like questions should you be asking other than, you know, we've talked about how many properties you're moving. Yeah. Maybe the fees is obviously one part. Yes. Would you ask, what should I expect from you? Like just setting some reasonable expectations. Yeah. Are you giving me an email update every day? Yeah. What's your process? Yeah. Yeah. What does this look like working together and how do you manage your clients? And will I see you all the way through? Like, are you going to be with me to a settlement or do you just buy me the property and then I'm on my own? Like, where does the service start? Or am I the salesperson and I introduce you to someone else in the office? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Is the person speaking on the phone at the start, the person that you get the whole way through. So yeah, understanding how their business works. um, And then also understanding is your buyer profile, what you're looking for, something they typically work on. Mm -hmm. Um, And if so, can they potentially put you in contact with a past client who's bought something similar or been in a similar position as them? I always offer that up, you know. Um, You read my mind. I was going to ask that. Yeah. (laughs) Like here's the mobile number of someone I bought for last month. Yeah. They were sceptical about using me and now, you know, they're not. And you'll find most people who use a buyer's advocate will say, I will never buy another property without one. Yeah. Well, interesting. Dev Raga, who hosts the My Millennial Money Professional podcast. Yes. He said this and maybe it swings into some practical examples. Yeah. It would be good to know the return on investment for higher value properties in excess of $3 million. I mean, you know, Dev's obviously a qualified mm-hmm. doctor and Obviously, has more money than God if he's talking about that. <laughs> but I would not buy anything in that range without a buyer's advocate. But the, but is there data on return on investment? Mm, okay. I have used buyer's advocate for our properties and have saved every time with a max contribution of twenty one to twenty three thousand dollars for a high value property. 
So that would be the price of the advocate. Yes. With return savings of almost 150 or more, but not sure if we just got lucky. So he paid up to 20 grand yep. for a BA, higher value property. Without that BA, they wouldn't have saved the 150. Sure. Is that always the case? Well, it's relative to the budget, right? Sure. Because, uh, and it depends again on how the advocate does charge, but if they're charging the same fee for a $1 million purchase as they are a $3 million purchase, the person who spends $3 million is probably going to see a better return on that fee simply by the fact that the saving is going to be greater. So, yeah, I definitely think there is value at the higher end. When it comes to higher end properties, particularly that price range, which funnily enough, I've just given up buying those properties because they're actually really hard. Wow. So um, we've just made a bit of a rule that we do 2 million under. And I know that sounds like 2 million under is still quite high price point, but three to five mil, it's very hard. And it's actually extremely hard to get, well, in the Melbourne market, um, discounts because it's so competitive. They're really the prestigious family homes in the A-grade areas and so everybody wants them. So nine times out of 10, there's also four or five other advocates on that property and you're competing still off market, but just a group of advocates all bidding it out to get it for their clients. So it's actually hard to quantify. If we look at the last batch of 10 clients that you had, how many properties that were settled were legitimately off market, so not on realestate.com or domain. Sure. So I know in the last six that we did, which was for August, we had four off market. Well, okay. So there is a higher chance that a BA will get you properties that you are not seeing online with your own research. And do you know what the most common trait of the properties is right now? It's investors selling out of the market who don't want to pay advertising, have a tenancy coming up to end, the 60 days notice to vacate lines up with a 60 day settlement. And so our clients have to go in with an open mind at times because the properties aren't always presented for sale. But I think there was three of those four were of that situation, investors Mm. selling out of apartments. Wow. So yeah, yeah, it's quite prominent. We'll take a break and we'll be back right after this, but I'm going to ask you some questions that might feel a bit awkward okay? <laughs> because they're, you know, they're, they're a bit dicey and people are okay, like we'll, asking the tough questions. Okay. Well, we did ask for it. Yeah, the Facebook so, group always delivers. I know. So we'll be back right after this. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we are back. I said I'd get awkward and I always oh deliver. <laughs> James asks, do they get a kickback from the developer slash real estate agent slash anyone else? I love this question, James. Do you know how many kickbacks I've been offered, Glenn? Heaps. <laughs> like so many. Really? Like I would be in a completely different space if I accepted the kickbacks I've been offered over time. And just to give the listeners a bit of an insight to the industry – Sometimes there's people out there who say they're a buyer advisor. So they're not a buyer's agent or a buyer's advocate. They're a buyer advisor, Mm -hmm. which really means they're a sales agent for a developer and they get kickbacks and put a circle around 25K per deal on like a $500,000 purchase. And they will advise somebody what the best possible property is in the development to buy and they get a 25K kickback. Kickbacks are rife in the industry. They do have to be disclosed. And a great question to ask a BA, actually, if you're interviewing one and you want to work with them, how are you paid? Mm. And the best ones will say that they are strictly paid and engaged solely by their buyers. Um, They do not share commissions with agents or developers because obviously conflict of interest and you can get fined for, actually somebody did in Melbourne, got fined for being on both sides of the fence. Mm. So be very careful. But yeah, James, it's actually very common. Do you need a license to be a buyer's advocate or agent? And is it state-based or state-dependent? Yeah, it is state-based. It's the same as the real estate agent selling license. If someone is a solo operator, they need a full real estate license. If they're under, if they're operating under somebody else, they might have like a entry-level license. But yes, they must be licensed to um, do what we do. There is no, and there should be, buyer's agent license. Mm. Another crazy question. Crazy question. Mark asks, how do I know that the best properties found by the buyer's agent aren't being firstly offered to the buyer's agents themselves, staff, family and friends, and only being put to clients after everyone else has had first dibs? So sloppy seconds. I mean, gosh, at the end of the day, I don't want to tin hat it too much because I did read this one. I was like... For me and all the properties that I've bought, Mm -hmm. it kind of is whatever will be, will be. I don't know. (laughs) I'm I'm pretty philosophical with like if it's the right thing and it's the right thing for me, I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think if you're worried about that, the person you've selected to be your BA is not the right fit for you. Like if that's a concern of yours, that would suggest to me that someone's not acting with a great moral compass, then I would certainly maybe- What's a moral compass? What's a moral compass? Mm. Just a good direction of what the right and wrong thing to do is. Oh, yeah, don't have one of them. Okay. (laughs) Walked into that. (laughs) I'm too literal. That's the problem. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, you're too Um, straight up. But certainly, look, I've had properties come across my desk that we've actually given to clients first and we've said to the client, full disclosure, if you don't buy this, we think it's so good that we'll probably find a way to buy it ourselves. Mm. And it's not to say you have to buy it or anything like that. It's just like, this is such a good opportunity that, you know, you really should consider it. But certainly, um, Mark, if that's a concern of anyone you're engaging, I would maybe look for somebody else. Caitlin, 
How can I be as awesome as Emily? Oh my God, do I know this? Kate. I don't even know who this Caitlin is, but... Well, um, how can I be uh, as awesome as Emily? Sign up for a class, Caitlin. Yeah. Um. And then Caitlin also <laughs> asked, when consulting a buyer's agent for an interstate purchase, would it be best to consult someone on the ground where you're probably looking to buy to inspect in person or a buyer's agent service that has knowledge and connections all across Australia's states but might not be on the ground of the purchase location, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'll I'll speak to that before you answer. Yeah, go for it. I know Pidge, like John Pigeon, when he has had his BA hat on, mm-hmm. they do a lot of research, obviously, with data and agents around, and then sometimes he'll hit the ground and do a tour of that town and go shopping and... Yeah, so it can be done. Yeah, it can be done from remote. So there's, so it's a well, great. I, I think John does a bit of a hybrid, like yeah, which can, is perfect. Yeah. I think there's two parts to this. So, and I totally understand what you're saying, Caitlin, because if you, as a buyer, have already identified the area that you want to invest in, and you've sort of taken step one on your own accord and said, right, I want to buy in. Newcastle, mm. then I would find an area specialist in Newcastle to buy that investment property. If you're taking one step back and you're saying, I've got $600,000 to spend, where is the best possible place to spend this? Then I would go for option two, someone who covers all of Australia and does that first piece for you, identifies the area and then goes on the ground and you know sorts it out. Mm. But there are, I guess, pros and cons to both of those. Yeah. Jack asks, what subtle questions to ask to see if they are working for a developer. Oh, so like this um, person who's not a buyer's advocate, yeah. it's more of like a buyer's, what did I call it before? Assistant. Assistant. Or, yeah, know, a buyer. advisor, buyer advisor. Yeah. Well, the you first- You could ask what your last handful of property sales were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would even just play dumb and say like, so uh, am I right in thinking that you're a sales agent or are you a buyer's agent? Like just, you know, is that- that's a fair question to be asking. Mm. Uh, I would also check out the company they work for. Like mm. they'd have to give a, a name and what company they're working for. And if it's linked to a developer, you'd know pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'll just ask straight out, like will the stock that you're showing me be from all different pockets of this region or are you only focused on a certain development that you are yeah. helping people buy in right now? That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Do you just deal with the one development or yeah. do you other houses? Yeah. <laughs> like and if someone said that to you. Or new yeah, build, yeah. You know? That's a good one because yeah. developer, it's only going to be new. Yeah. And can I just say, because I think it's really important um, and I know you're relatively new to TikTok, Glenn, but, you know, time on the platform. There's, um, <laughs> there's uh, quite a few people on TikTok who are these buyer advisors mm. and they've cracked the code in giving reviews of properties in different areas and actually um, basically working from a desk for for a developer and selling mum and dad investors on these house and land packages as really good returns. They give some really good information and don't get me wrong, some of them look like really good investments, others not so much, but just be careful where you get your information from. I know TikTok, I mean, even I've learned so much through TikTok just on random like life things, but it is a platform that's not regulated enough in the property space. So just be really careful careful who you engage with on there and what their actual motive is for the content that they're posting. Would some of these property advisors Mm. say, oh, we don't charge a fee? Because that's a red flag. They don't charge a fee. Well, they're obviously getting, no one works for free. If you're not paying, you're not the client. I have always said this. Yeah. And it's the same even back to the point of a real estate agent. The vendor is paying the real estate agent. 
they are the client. As a buyer, you are not the client of the real estate agent. They are not working in your best interests. Mm. Same with these developers. So if you're not paying, you're not the client. So make sure you you understand that um, in the property world. Stephanie said, love all these questions so far. So do I. I said that. <laughs> My questions are around engagement and this kind of will move us to this process. Mm. Is there usually an upfront retainer paid and then a percentage of sale price? And is that sales slash hammer price not including all fees and taxes? What if the BA doesn't find you enough options or not suitable options? What if the property you buy, you found yourself not through the BA, do you still pay them uh, all or some of the agreed fee? So good question. Let's do a live case. I'm moving to Melbourne to live, right? Might happen. Might happen. You might need um, a BA. <laughs> I might like, yeah, I'm having a breakdown, everyone. Still having my breakdown. Yeah. Um, Are we all? <laughs> yeah. So I call you and say, yeah. Emily, I want you to find me a property in this suburb here. Yeah. I've driven myself. Like, do I give you a map and just highlight the streets that I like or? Literally, like I just had a brief come through from a client yeah. and it's just got, yeah, highlighter. And someone actually came to a meeting who listens to the podcast actually, shout out to um, Katie and Carl, and they bought a highlighter on a printed out map of like, this is where we want, and they even graded it like red no-go. Like, oh, yes. maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So I say, yeah, I want these eight streets-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, go get them, Tiger. Yep. Like someone said that and and we'll make a number up and you said your fee was $20,000. Mm-hmm. Part of your process do I pay you all up front, some up front? What's the process? So generally speaking, most advocates will have like a third up front as a retainer fee or an engagement fee. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is there's no guarantee that the advocate will buy your property within the service agreement timeframe. Sure. So they shouldn't be taking on things they don't think they can buy for. That would be silly, okay. but so, yes. So basically, was loosely speaking, I pay yep. you seven grand up front. Yep. I've paid you that. A month's gone on. Mm-hmm. Which, how long would it usually take? Like, do you have an average turnaround for your clients? We do, segmented by price. So, yes. under a million dollars, 32 days from yep. someone okay, engaging cool. to, to buying. So, yeah. we'll say 25 days has gone on. Yeah. Right? I get a call from someone. Hey, I know a place in that exact area. Do you want it? I'm like, oh, yeah. And I call you and say, hey, I've actually found a place. Mm-hmm. Do you then say, well, we've put all this work in, I need more than the $7,000. Like, is it explained in the engagement document what that process is? It's quite a grey area because most service agreements, including ours, says an introduced property during the time. So when we meet with buyers and most advocates would do the same, it's that the entire process is outsourced to us. Mm -hmm. Now, if someone calls you that's not connected to us and it's like a friend whose uncle's selling their house, which actually happened. Someone's friend's uncle was selling a house and told our buyers about it. We did not charge our success fee because the property wasn't actually introduced through us. We were not involved in any of the due diligence of that purchase. We did no negotiating or anything like that. They said, yep. we've got this property, we're going to handle it on our own. Thank you so much for your time. But and I've already paid that seven grand because yep. you have been working and you yep. don't work for free. So that's, that's fine. That's your retainer, yep. part ways yep. and the success isn't payable. So the biggest thing is though, if you are engaging a buyer's advocate, I wouldn't continue to look on the apps or be on the mailing list for the real estate agents. Like you've paid to outsource a process, handball it to the professionals, they will filter everything for you. They're going to see it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But if it's an out of the blue call that, you know, happens to be connected, then of course, I think the right thing to do back to the moral compass Mm. would be 
we haven't found that for you, but we wouldn't negotiate it for you though. Like if you found something, you're you're solo from there on in. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Now, if for example, I've paid seven grand, it's been 25 days, you're like, hey, we need to keep going. We haven't found a place yet. Yep. Would there be another retainer? And then is the success fee always the same or just keep paying us five grand a month until we find a place and then you pay us 15 grand or something like that? Sure. So our personal service agreement and many are the same is actually a 90-day engagement and the retainer fee is covered for the whole 90 days. Yep. Then if we hit 90 days, which would be a very big rarity, but if we got to that point, we would look at a further retainer for a further period of time. So it might be 45 days at 50%, so three and a half grand for 45 days further and go from there. I've only ever once extended someone's retainer um, and mutually we agreed we needed to because of the profile and the area was very small. But a good measure of an advocate would be how many questions they're asking you upfront to make sure your profile is doable in the service agreement time Mm. without being rushed. So then we'll just say, loosely speaking, we've paid $7,000. You find a property. Yep. Now that balance of say $13,000. Yep. When is that paid? Once, well, for our personal rules, it's when you have an unconditional contract. So if you were to sign a private sale and it's pending finance and pending building and pest, if those two things didn't occur and you're back to the drawing board, then you keep going. There's no success paid. Yes. It's only successful once you have an unconditional contract of sale. Some advocates will do it at settlement, but majority do do it at unconditional because it's their job done mm. uh, by that point. Because if someone wanted a, a five-month settlement, well, you don't yeah. want to wait another five months or more to get paid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So majority of people are yeah, unconditional contract. Could there be some BAs out there around Australia that you've seen mm. where – the success fee is paid with proceeds of sale through a solicitor's trust account for cash flow reasons? Yeah, I've actually had that and made an exception for one client to do yeah. that and it was paid through the like PEXA system online. Yes. Yeah. yeah, so it can be done um, and distributed. It's quite easy at yeah. settlement, yeah. but I wouldn't say it's common. Mm. Okay, yeah. cool, cool, cool. Manika, another one on fees. Some BAs charge a flat fee, others a percentage, which can give you a big difference in terms of BA costs. Why is the case when the due diligence process steps should be the same when buying a property for less than $1 million or above $1 million? That was number one. Mm. Um, So we'll answer that first. So it's a good question because you would think, loosely speaking, it's the same amount of work to buy a $1 million or $1.5 or two, maybe. However, generally speaking, The more value of something, Mm -hmm. the higher the complexity and the higher needs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's complex in a different way. So, for example, I would actually say that at times we spend more work on due diligence for a two-bedroom apartment at $600,000 than I do for a freestanding house at double the price at $1.2 million. Right. However, I would probably find it easier to find lots of these two-bedroom apartments versus it would take me a long time to find the freestanding 1.2 mil home. So it's it's different in different ways. You start to get a lot more complexities when you get up to the three, four mil mark where it, there's just not many properties transacting. So the volume is low and you have to keep knocking down the agent's doors continually. But look, generally speaking, most advocates will categorise their purchases under a million dollars and then one to 1.5, 1.5 to two, and then 
over two is usually by quote for most people because it depends on, like I've had briefs where it's literally five streets. That's all they want is five streets. Door knocked them all, letterbox dropped them all, like sent the list to all the agents. Like it's a lot of work to get something within five streets as opposed to five suburbs. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and that could be like rarer to get a property. it is. And it takes more time. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. Gosh. So, yeah, I guess... It would be unusual for someone to pay the same price for $600,000 versus two mil. It's just Mm. there usually is more fee involved. And Monika's second question, how can you tell apart a BA who is actually a spruker versus BA that isn't? I mean, that maybe speaks to the developer thing. Yeah. But generally in my life, I've realized, you know, if I get that phone call, hey, Glenn, do you own a house? Are you a taxpayer? Do you have superannuation? I'm like, like, oh, this is such a noble thing that this person's asking me. <laughs> they just want to help, I'm sure. Yeah. No, they're selling something. So the difference is the engagement needs to come from you and your own research. Yes. So I am researching buyer's advocates. Exactly. Yeah. And you find it through that avenue as opposed to an Instagram ad saying, you know, do you want to own five properties in the next five years? Sign up to our free webinar and off we go. Those sorts of things just don't typically, it's not the way it it works. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. You want to find it off your own bat. Yeah. And finally, Tana, we have kind of touched on this, but I'll read the whole thing. At what price bracket should you engage a BA? 500, 5 to 750, 750 to 1 million, over a million. So we know it's whatever. Literally anything. The only time I have said no to a budget is actually on the fact that the budget doesn't buy what the client wants, not that the budget is too small. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Does a BA ensure all pre-purchase checks are done? There's a level of due diligence done by a BA, but there's also an element that has to be done by a conveyancer because they can't, you know, legally give advice. Yeah, like you're not going to check if there's going to be a highway built through the backyard tomorrow, like that should get picked up in conveyance, right? Oh, we do check that sort of stuff. So we check planning and development. Right. The conveyancer more so checks the things to do with the title itself, like the property itself. Mm. My conveyancers have checked that type of stuff for me though. Oh, have they? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It might vary state to state as well on how much liability they take on. But a good BA would be looking at macro and micro changes. Yeah, to make sure everything's all above board. Does your BA work with a mortgage broker to assist in your finance? We, I mean, generally speaking, BAs would have mortgage broker contacts, but by the time someone reaches a BA, it's highly likely they've already got pre-approval. We liaise with them when it comes to making an offer or getting ready for auction, but um, it's not like you work exclusively with a mortgage broker. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you need to be finance pre-approved before engaging a BA? Well, I mean, you just have to have your ducks in a row. You do, yeah. There's no point engaging one if you haven't at least lodged for pre-approval Yeah. Um, because particularly in the off-market space, the properties move so quickly, mm. you can't afford to be waiting around for finance. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Grant, is it worth it in a market where there is not much quality on the market and would you use a BA for land and building a house, both investment and to live in? I think there definitely is a place for specific buyers agents who do house and land uh, to live in. The investment I would, because I would go with someone who does establish and house and land for investment to make sure you're getting all possible options. But there are, I can't remember the name. There's a particular company who actually, they just do like house and land and help home buyers pick the best builder, pick um, the right pocket of an estate, even the position in the street. Yeah. I would say on the land thing, Hmm. there may be a case of needing to get a BA 
to find a shack to knock over. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because yeah. there's some parts like there's no land in this suburb. For sure. There's lots of shacks. Yes. Yeah. Um, knock down, rebuild. We've been engaged to do that. Mm. Yeah. Literally just find the right location. Yeah. So that's what I would say there. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the first part talking about is it worth it when there's um, not much quality of stock on the market. How do you know what's on the market, Grant? Yeah, and how do you know when there's one third of the market that you can't see in the capacity of off-market? So I would say it's yeah, even more Grant. reason, Grant. <laughs> no, 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 we love, we love you. you, Grant. Uh, no, it's more that there's more opportunity in the off-market space. So if the quality of property online is a bit woeful, the chances are there might be some good gems hiding in the off-market. Talk to us about how you negotiate on behalf of your clients? It depends. I mean, it's such a case by case, Mm. but what I typically do is work out what levers I can pull. So there's price, settlement and terms, usually the three ones. There is, the fourth one is the emotional piece, but you can't always use it. It depends on the situation of of the homeowner, the vendor, as to how much my client situation affects their decision to take our offer. But understanding, obviously price is front of mind for a lot of vendors, but I am coming up against many who want a long settlement because they must buy. They're selling first and then buying. So pulling that lever. And I'm basically just going back and forth and trying to not put my best forward at the, at the outset, putting something that's pretty good, but not our best and pulling the levers as I need to, lengthening the settlement, shorting the settlement. And there could be little strategies that you know about that could work based on your experience with different types of properties or if it's a deceased or if it isn't or... Yeah, and the biggest one is actually how well do I know the agent? There Mm. are some agents that genuinely that I can call up and they'll go, Emily, like this is how it is. Yeah, and you know. Black and white. Yeah. Don't give me a dollar less and I... I'll still give a dollar less, but yeah. you know, it's sort of like I. This is the absolute bottom line, hmm. um, and so trying to get to that point is really important. And then it's my job to work out: is this actually worth it? You know, is this quote unquote market value? So yeah, negotiating takes all different forms, strategies with deadlines, um, or sometimes drawing it out. Sometimes it is a case of really wading through it, and negotiations can take a week. And there's going to be different strategies in different market cycles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the number one thing in the off-market space with a negotiation is if this property goes to market, how popular would it be? And is it likely that it would sell for more than what I'm actually being able to buy it for now? Mm. And people often go, well, why would a vendor sell off-market if they could sell it for more money on market? And simply put, most vendors who go off-market don't want the stress or hassle of a campaign. They don't want the anxiety people of it. coming through their home. Yeah. They might not want people to know that the place is for sale. Yes. But also people don't realise, and because there's a lot of first home buyers buying into the market, they don't realise yet how stressful selling is. Mm. It's like having a party, sending all these invites and just hoping someone rocks up because that's what, that's what an auction is, hoping someone with the right amount of money shows up and bids the price you want to sell for. Next Saturday, someone listening is going to an auction and they're bidding themselves. Oh. What strategy should they do? First and foremost, please pick the limit before you rock up to the auction. Right. Auctioneers are trained to get the most money out of you. So you need to set a limit and stand absolutely firm on it. And then look, it depends on how many people are there at the auction. When it's a super hectic auction, I personally don't bid until the property's on the market, but that doesn't always work. Uh, if it's a low key auction and you might only be the only buyer, you'd rather it be passed into you to negotiate. Okay. So there's a few terms there that you've said oh, yes. that people <laughs> might not know. Sure. Um, I thought when I go to an auction, the property is on the market. 
No. It's for sale. Well, it's yes, it's for sale. On the market means has it hit the vendor's reserve price, their sale price. So you might go to an auction of a property and it's got a quote range, 500 to 550,000. Somewhere in that range, they might be on the market. They might not be on the market to 580,000. It's actually at their discretion. Right. So once it's called on the market, you'll hear the auctioneer say, we're on the market, we're playing for keeps, we're selling the property. That's when you know yeah. anything over that, knocked down and sold. Okay, so... Don't worry about doing opening bids or anything like that. Uh, knockout bids can work yep. for opening bids. Yep. And it's it's so hard to give direct advice for auctions because it's guess so you know, situational. You need to know the market, the volume yeah. of people. Is it in a boardroom? Is it on the street? Like I don't even decide my strategy until I'm in the auction. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like it's sure. so situational. Um, Could I pay you to go to an auction for me? Yes, you can. And not use you as my BA or anything like that? As in just a bid? Yeah. Yeah. So we do a bid only service. Most advocates will do a bid only service. Um, I like to inspect the property because I want to know what I'm bidding on. So I I do um, inspect, assess and act. Mm. So simply that. I give a pricing report, help set the limit and then I'll actually do the bidding for the client on the day. Should it get passed into us, we would negotiate the deal afterwards as well. Mm. So yeah, you can. Um, bid only. The fees across Australia vary on that, but like usually a circle between three to five K. Yeah. It's kind cool. of the engagement. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, we've covered a lot of ground. We have. Anything else that you wanted to say that you see online that isn't true about BAs or any final thoughts? Uh, look, I think there's a lot of new BAs in the space um, and some of the questions did allude to that as well. Someone doesn't have to have bought a lot of properties because everyone's got to start somewhere. I mean, I started somewhere, yeah, like, well, you know, my first client. Absolutely. Like, what have you bought? Yeah. But I would say um, in selecting them, I would certainly look at someone who owns property themselves and has been exposed to property in their personal life. And then just to reiterate the good measure of calling the real estate agents and saying, you know, what have your dealings been like with this buyer's advocate? Yeah. How are they received? Because that will actually give you the true test. Like the reason I say that is I know there's some agents who will simply not deal with certain advocates and that's really not good for their clients because they're missing out on a whole lot of stock. Yeah. So that that's why I sort of reiterate that point because mm. it's um, quite important. Well, we might leave it there. Hey, if you are looking to buy a home to live in or to upgrade the home that you live in, in what postcodes for you? There's like 60 of them, Glenn. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. If you're in Melbourne, they'll do Yeah, go whatever. to Melbourne and then we'll sort it out. <laughs> yeah. If it's, in, if it's the other side of the river or whatever. Not west. We not don't west. do west. That's okay. pretty much what we don't do. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you do want uh, someone like Emily and her team, because it is a team effort. It is. Support staff is a big role of a lot of professional services. My business has a lot of support staff that helps, you know, once I press stop on this recording, mm-hmm. like the business doesn't happen without support staff, mm-hmm. uh, but it's just about getting those expectations set. What's the involvement? When should I hear from you? Yes. If I don't hear from you tomorrow, do I call every day? Just be very clear about the process and mm-hmm. the expectations. And they might even have some expectations uh, for you as well. Yeah, so, totally. So yeah, there you go. If you want to buy a house to live in or upgrade that you live in in Melbourne, Emily Wallace will point you in the right direction. Um, I trust her explicitly. Uh, she's sitting in my house right now. Um, <laughs> I trust her enough to be in the house. So that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good measure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll also put a link in the show notes to John Pigeon's business, uh, Envisage Property, for those who want to um, yeah, look at investing and look at a BA for investing. Definitely. That's who you go to. Yeah. 
we'll leave it there. Emily Wallace, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. And you can hear Emily on the My Millennial Property Podcast also. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports a variety of charities, and we encourage you to consider giving as part of your overall financial strategy. If you would like some giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to mymillennial.money forward slash charities for more info. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.